today's passage is Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered over to the hands of the sinners, be crucified, and on the third day, be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of Jesus, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Portia. Good morning. Before we get going, I want to, uh, I hope this won't be a one-off Sunday for you. Uh, We are launching a new series next week. I'm really excited about this. I've kind of kept this one for a while, knowing I wanted to do it. So we're starting it uh, next week. It's called The Emotions of God, Making Sense of a God Who Hates, Weeps, and Loves. Uh, Some people think God has no emotions, which I think is ridiculous if you read the Bible, and we're made in God's image. But this is what happens, at least for me. I ascribe my emotions to God. Am I, am I alone in that? <laughs> God hates the things I hate and is angry about the things I'm angry and his anger looks like. It's not like that at all. And I think this, this series will really press us. We're going to look at seven emotions. A book written by my friend David Lamb. He's a scholar, a brilliant guy, uh, is shaping this series. And we do these things called big reads, where for those few people who are still reading books, that's a thing. We want to encourage you to read along with us. It's a really fantastic book, and it's not nerdy. It's, uh, it's popular level. And we'll, I'll interview David within the series, and we'll also interact with therapists throughout along the way, because as emotions come up and we understand how God carries these emotions in a correct way, it'll turn back to us. What do we do with anger? What do we do with sadness? What do we do with joy? I'm trying to get my therapist to come. We'll see. You can't ask him any questions if he does. But let's not get, uh, get ahead of ourselves. Uh, today is the highest day on the Christian church calendar. Uh, we're here to celebrate that he is risen. Yeah, now, now you, you kind of missed a cue there. Um, we'll give you another shot. Uh, when, when in the Christian, uh, in the way of Jesus, and this is, goes back many, many centuries as far as I understand it, when on, on Resurrection Sunday, when someone says... He is risen, you respond. He is risen indeed. All right, all right. some of you are just quick off the, like you type A people are just like hyper. So let's all do it together, right? He is risen. He is risen We can't talk about life until we talk about death. 
And I encountered this uh, interesting principle recently that followers of Jesus have held close for way back before even medieval times. And it's a Latin phrase called memento more. And it literally means, the translation is, remember, you must die. Or literally, it's the vernacular is just remember death. And that's not alien to scripture. We could turn to Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses' psalm, where he says, God teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Uh, other writers of scripture say that our lives are like mist. We're here one moment and gone the next, or like grass in the desert. We're here one moment in the morning, and by evening we're gone. If, if they were writing in our times, I would use the bubble illustration. You see kids blow bubbles. They're there, and then they're gone. They're there, and then they're gone. That's life. That's memento more. And it's not morbid. It's, there's a beauty to it. There's a, a, a truth that it brings to our lives that teach us how to really live. A lot of the great church fathers embraced this, and they made, uh, way, way back, they made uh, the skull an icon. And an icon is something that when you look at it, you see through it. You see truth through it. And for us, modern people are like, eh, skulls. For our church fathers, it just... They were like, yes, skulls. They would, they would have skulls. Well, here's a couple of examples. Here's St. Francis. You may know St. Francis holding, a, it looks like the cover of a video game or something. He does. He's like, ooh. And then here's, this is a famous painting called uh, St. Jerome in his study. He's a famous, St. Jerome needs to put on a shirt, first of all, I think. <laughs> but there's that. And then this is Vanitas. Uh, this is a famous painting uh, with the hourglass and the, the skull right in the middle and then kind of a, a flower or, or life. It, it, it's, an, it's an icon that teaches us how to really live. We, we, we see it and we remember that, that life is short, and, and we gotta, we got to lean in and begin to embrace it, to really experience it. You, uh, you may be thinking, at this present moment, this is the, the worst Easter sermon I've ever heard. Uh, but the truth is, now those of you who wanted to get a skull tattoo feel you got pastoral approval to, to do this. <laughs> Sorry, parents. Uh, I, I encountered a song recently by that great biblical scholar, uh, country singer Tim McGraw. If you, if you know it, it's called uh, Live Like You Were Dying. And it's about a guy who gets, uh, you may know the song, and, and he gets a cancer diagnosis and he doesn't have much time to live. And he begins to pick up pace. He begins to reach out to people he had bad relationships with and rekindle relationships and do those things he never thought he... And then he gets a word from the doctor that, just kidding, <laughs> you're not dying. <laughs> and he said, but he realized the truth that you really begin to live when you face death. We can't talk about life until we talk about death. Let's, uh, let's get a little context for the passage Portia read. It's from Luke's gospel. There are four gospels or historical eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And we chose Luke's version of the resurrection because if, if you bump around New Hope for a while, we were in Luke last year for a long time. And then we went to Luke's sequel, Acts. And we just finished that up here at New Hope. So it made sense to go with Luke's account. If you remember, one of Luke's themes in his gospel, the gospels have a lot of similarity and a lot of differences. One of Luke's themes is the great reversal. And Luke, uh, every scene Jesus is in, almost in Luke's gospel, he's reversing something. Then when you encounter Jesus in Luke's gospel, things are being turned inside out and upside down, and that includes the people that collide with Jesus. When Jesus is talking about his kingdom, 
the last will be first. The, 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 the least is the greatest. The poor are the rich. Those who give their lives away find their lives. And you're just like, oh, everything is flipped. And today, we're going to look at Jesus' greatest great reversal. His greatest great reversal. So let's get some context for our passage. I don't like to just like go right into a passage without context. We're in Holy Week. So if you're here last week, Pastor Mike gave a great sermon on Palm Sunday. So Jesus and his disciples... Um, we're heading to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which is the high water mark for Jewish people even today. And so they're heading there. Jesus probably grew up going to Passover feast in Jerusalem. You were supposed to do it in the city if you could. And so he comes in, and, and he ha- kind of has this scene. And it, we celebrate it on Palm Sunday where they're laying down palm branches and laying down their cloaks, and they're saying, Hosanna, which means uh, save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Old Testament prophets. Well, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a silly seed compared to what Jesus is doing. We, we, we wouldn't know if we saw it, if we were time capsuled in, they knew what he was doing. Jesus was doing another great reversal. There was something called the Roman Triumphus. And the Roman Triumphus happened when a Roman general would win a war. And that Roman general would enter a city and they would have a parade. Sometimes it would go on for days. And this Roman general would wear a crown and wear a very richly embroidered toga, and all of the dignitaries were there, and all of his family friends, and they were all around him, and he would be in a big chariot with four big horses, and they would make their way about two miles through the city to the temple, where they would have two white oxen, and they would sacrifice those, and they were sacrificing to the god Jupiter, but this king would also be seen as a god. And along the way, they're laying down their cloaks, and they're laying down palm branches, and they're praising and giving glory to this king. And behind the king are all the prisoners in cages and shackled. Some of them would die, and most of them would become slaves. The Roman triumph has happened all the time. Now we see what Jesus is doing. Jesus is flipping it. It almost like, as Jesus does, in kind of a silly, pathetic, I don't get it kind of way. If you were there that day, why didn't they try to stop him? Because they would have seen it and just laughed at him. Because he's not in a chariot. He's on a donkey drag at his feet. And he's got this motley crew of misfits. The, the blind that can see now and the lame that can walk. And they're all around him and they don't fit with anybody but Jesus. And they're just like, woo! And it's just a crew of maybe, I don't know, 40 people or something. And he enters the East Gate and hardly anybody notices. But he's telling us, and he's going to tell us the entire Holy Week, What you think about God is wrong. (laughs) What you think about a king is wrong. And I'm about to show you what it looks like to be a king. So he goes in. He goes to the temple, which like the epicenter of the Jewish uh, economy and government and faith. It was this, you know, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it's monstrous. And he goes and he just checks things out. He gets a lay of the land. And then he leaves. And he goes with his followers, his disciples, to Bethany, where it's kind of one of his home bases when he wasn't in the north part of the country in Galilee. And Mary and Martha were there. You may have heard there's an And Lazarus is at this meal, who just got raised from the dead by Jesus. Like, how about that for a conversation partner, you know, at the dinner table? And Mary breaks the expensive oil in the alabaster jar and pours it upon Jesus. And there's a dissension about that. It's very expensive. It's a year's wages. And Jesus is like, Mary is preparing me for burial. They didn't understand these words. It was cryptic. It was weird. And then Jesus is talking about the kingdom and parables, and he does that for a little while. And then they enter the city for Passover. He goes back to the temple. This time, he doesn't just observe. He goes in, and he starts flipping tables. 
and chasing out the money changers. Because the temple, the place that the people who were Gentile and the people who were far for God and ladies, even the women's court was populated by money changers. They couldn't get to God. And Jesus is like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, uh-uh. What have you done to my father's house? And he's also saying like, I now am gonna become the temple. I am now gonna be the place where heaven and earth overlap. And then they go and uh, they have a Passover feast a day early. And the Passover feast was the celebration and the storytelling mechanism uh, that retold the story of the Exodus, God's salvation. And Jesus takes those elements and takes that storytelling time and puts himself at the epicenter of that story. And he says, I am now the epicenter of God's salvation plan for the world. This bread, this my body. This cup, it's my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples are like, huh? They're like confused. I don't understand. But it's starting to get dark. It's starting to get ominous. They can tell in the tone in Jesus' voice. Judas betrays him. Peter says he doesn't know who he is. They walk down to the garden. He gets arrested. He has a couple different trials. He's whipped. He's beaten. And then they put on like a, a royal toga after they strip him bare in front of everybody, after they've whipped him and he's bleeding, and they put a crown of thorns on his, and they mock him. And then on the cross is king of the Jews, and Jesus is doing this great reversal. He's like, you don't understand. You're gonna. You don't understand. You don't understand. And then he walks to the Via Della Rosa. It's the way of suffering, and he's carrying his patibulum, which is the top part of the cross, and a man needs to help him because he's... He's beaten to within an inch of his life, and he hangs on the cross, and he doesn't last for long. He, he breathes his laugh, and he's hanging there, and he's dying. Catch this detail. As the Passover lambs are being sacrificed for the Passover feast that night. How about that? And then we remember John's gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' last words of seven statements that are recorded by the gospel writers is, it is finished. And we're told the moment that happened, the veil in the temple, it was about four or five inches thick, and it separated the holy space where only God was and only the high priest could go once a year on behalf of the people. It separated God's holiness from all of us who are not holy, and it ripped asunder. And graves are opening, and crazy things are happening. The sky is turning dark, and there's eclipses, and the centurion at the cross says, truly, you are the Son of God. And then Jesus is laid in the tomb of a famous man named Joseph of Arimathea, probably not too far away. And the tomb is sealed to protect from grave robbery. And then Passover meal commences, and then the Sabbath happens. And Jesus' followers couldn't quite finish his burial preparation. And so that's where we are in the story. That's when Portia started to read. It's been like maybe your Saturday was yesterday, silent and waiting, anxious, tension-filled. And they're wondering, and they're heartbroken, and they're hiding, and particularly the male disciples are scared to death. They think they're going to be next. And it's the women, women, who have the courage. And they get up early, and they know exactly where he is, and they take the spices uh, to finish Jesus' preparations. Jesus uh, would have been laid in a typical tomb, It might have looked something, I think we have a picture of it. Uh, These tombs were carved out of limestone. Limestone is very soft. And so you would take the body, especially of a Jewish person, and you would wrap it up in linens, tight, and then you would lay it on a slab within the burial tomb. And so rich people had had, uh, space for numerous different people from different places. So they lay it on the slab, and then they put spices on it, and then they come back a year, and they put it in like a burial slot, like a canal, 
They come back a year later, pull it out, and it was pretty much just bones, and they'd take the bones and put it in a bone box and put the bone box away, and that's just how it went. So they hadn't, because of the rush, because of Passover, they didn't quite have time to finish things up. So when they come, uh, they're shocked, they're astonished, and all four gospel writers uh, say the same thing about this in different ways. And the women uh, find the stone rolled away. The stone was there to protect from grave robbery. And then they encounter angels. And I don't know what that was like, but every time in Scripture people encounter angels, they're scared, and then they bow. And these angels ask this penetrating question. They say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And I got to think they ask it with a smile on their face. They couldn't wait to tell them the good news. And then they're saying, don't you remember? Don't you remember he told you he would die and rise again? And Luke, who's a historian, just simply says, and they remembered. So they're now bursting with joy and full of enthusiasm. And I see them running back to the dudes who are hunkered down and hiding and just thinking about themselves. And they tell them, like, he is risen. And they do not respond, he is risen indeed. They're just like, what, are you crazy? Literally, I don't know if you heard the exact words Portia used, but ladies, pay attention to this. It says that the men did not believe the women because their words sounded like nonsense. Have you been there, ladies? Just, <laughs> can I get an amen from my sisters, you know? Dudes, the ladies are usually right. Let's just be honest. <laughs> so, it, uh, I think it's remarkable if, you, if you're a woman who's grown up in church and, and you felt like that you didn't have a place at the table, that the, the, the greatest message, the greatest good news ever given was entrusted to women. So let's just remember that, dudes, when we try to box out the ladies in our midst. And sorry if that has ever been your experience. I was, I was studying this passage, and I, I came across that line, and, and it says they thought their words were nonsense. And I just want to acknowledge this morning that some of you don't come to church regularly here. Some of you are not followers of Jesus. That's okay. There's no judgment there. We're so glad you're here. Some of you do purport to follow Jesus or maybe grew up in church, and you've been coming to Easter Sunday, and that's kind of your rhythm. That's okay, too. We're so glad you're here. But when you're really honest, and we're an honest church here, we try to speak honestly, there's an element to what we're celebrating today that sounds like nonsense. Can we just be honest? I mean, dead people usually stay dead, unless you have a story. <laughs> that's my experience. And yet here we are in our Sunday best, saying he is risen, he is risen. I mean, are we, what, what are we doing here? What's going on here? Is there an element that this story is nonsensical? I think that that's a, a reasonable mindset to have. So I thought, and I want to step aside from kind of the flow of my message. I don't usually do this. And I want to take five minutes. You can time me. I'll probably do like six or seven, but I'll try for five. And I thought I'd give my best apologetic for the historical proof of the resurrection. How do you guys feel about that? It's not, it's not up to you, but I'm just being honest. This is... <laughs> The vast majority of people in the world today, and if, if, we, if we reflect surveys, the vast majority of people in this room believe in the existence of God. It's always been the case. It still is. It really, the numbers haven't changed hardly at all. So unless people are lying in surveys, the vast majority of humans, upper 80 percentile, believe in a supernatural realm. That just simply means the natural realm is what we can see and measure and experience with our senses. We believe broadly, and always have, that there is a God, there's a spiritual realm that interacts with this realm, or maybe you believe that it doesn't, but we believe that it's out there. So if that's true, the vast majority of humanity now and throughout history has believed in the potential for miracles. So I just say that to say, like, we're not in crazy land here by talking about this. 
We're not encouraged. We believe, most of us, if we're telling the truth, that miracles happen. So let's look at the historical proof for the resurrection. I'll be concise. There's libraries of books written on this subject. If you want to dig deeper, come find me after the service. Uh, first uh, historical proof is the Old Testament prophets, and it's recorded in the Old Testament, give us uh, six, seven hundred years before the time of Jesus, of Nazareth, give us a very concise sketch of what this Messiah, where he's born, when he'll die, uh, what tribe he's from, on and on and on. Jesus of Nazareth historically checked every single box. These prophets also told us that the Messiah, the divine king to come, would die and then rise again. And Jesus himself said, I will die and I will rise again, which is bold. If you know, do you know Babe Ruth, the baseball player? Babe Ruth famously called his shot one time, meaning he said, I'm going to hit a home run. And it was a really important game, and he pointed, and then he got up and he hit a home run on his neck. That's impressive. So it wasn't just like Jesus rose from the dead. He's like, ah, I didn't expect that. Cool. <laughs> he, he said, I'm going to rise from the dead. They didn't understand it. He said, I'm going to rise from the dead. That's what the angels told him. Do you not remember? So I think that that is really interesting. Historians broadly agree, Christian, non-Christian, believe in God, don't believe in them, they broadly agree that a man named Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Roman government on a cross in the early 30s and was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Historians also broadly agree, Christians and non-Christians, that that very tomb was empty a few days after he was laid there. We also have hundreds of historical eyewitnesses, very verifiable. The Gospels are really incredible historical documents. You don't have to believe it through the Word of God. They're great historical documents as we measure for historical documents. And they tell us hundreds of people saw Jesus. Not in a spiritual sense, like, I feel Jesus is alive. Like, they ate with him. They walked with him. They heard him talk. They touched him. They hugged him. They hung out with him. Hundreds. And then finally, we have tons and tons of eyewitnesses that died for what they said they saw and believed. And then finally, the, the Romans and the Jews, their best story in the face, picture this, Jesus is crucified. Shortly thereafter, his followers are walking down Main Street again and again proclaiming that Jesus is alive from the dead. Their response, the mightiest government on the face of the earth, and the Jewish people that ran the entire government, their best response was, well, his disciples stole the body, which is a farcical claim. If you study the scriptures and see these teenage boys cowering and shaking in a corner, denying that you're really telling me they're going to show up at a grave, overpower Roman force, steal the body, to, then they could just find the body. And they get nothing. Nada. Zero. I was, uh, I was with a a world-renowned scholar named Dr. Craig Keener recently. He was in Portland doing some stuff with pastors, and I got the privilege of interviewing him. And Craig's a historian. He's a gospel expert. He also travels the world verifying miracles. And he's a really interesting dude, brilliant. He's 30 books, 2 million copies sold. So I'm up on the stage with him, and I, I, I just thought, I might as well use this tie wise. I said, Craig, you know, this is last week. I said, for those of us who haven't finished our, our Easter sermons, what would you say to a person... If you were in an elevator with them and you had two minutes, you can't give them the whole thing. They're not going to read your books. What would you say? You got two minutes with them. What's your best historical proof for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth? He didn't miss a beat. He said the eyewitnesses, the eyewitnesses. 
He goes, here's what we know about eyewitnesses. Uh, Eyewitnesses will die for a lie, but unknowingly. (laughs) He said, we don't ever know of any eyewitnesses dying for something they know to be a lie. And what tradition holds that 11 out of the 12 teenage disciples who were just kind of a dumpster fire as a group of disciples, <laughs> they gave their life. Like if I was, if I was, if they did somehow figure out how to steal the body and this was a massive ploy and it just, like when they get up to the point they're getting whipped and hung on a cross themselves, I'd be like, just kidding, just kidding, he is dead. <laughs> they didn't. And furthermore, skeptics came to faith in Jesus after his crucifixion including his brother, James. Can you imagine growing up with a brother who's like, I'm the son of God? No, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm the son of God. I mean, James was never a follower of his brother until after the resurrection. What could explain all that? I challenge you, if you're a skeptic, to come up with a better story. I think I know. My wife and I, we did a pilgrimage to the Holy Land last year around this time. And if you were at Monday, Thursday, you'll know these photos along the room with little synopsises or pictures. My wife's a photographer, and they're really beautiful, and I just encourage you to linger there after the service if you have time. Uh, We went to the garden tomb, which is one of the sites that said, hey, you know, maybe this could be Jesus' tomb, and they've done a really remarkable job. If it isn't, it looks like it. It's near the place. It's in Jerusalem. It's a garden. And we went in, and I was super excited, and we spent about an hour there. I was with my, my doctoral cohort, and I went in the tomb, and then there was, some, there was time they just gave us to walk. So Corey kind of was taking pictures, and I went, and, and I sat. There's some benches kind of right outside of that, that opening. And I, I started to pray and think, and then, man, I just lost it. I mean, I just started to weep, like, like kind of embarrassing lost it. And tears are just streaming, but they're, they're tears of joy. And I, I had this moment, I was like, I think it's true. And some of you are thinking, oh, you've been our pastor for a long time. You're just now coming around to the resurrection. <laughs> I mean, I always believe. Right? And, I, and belief is more than just, oh, I think I'll believe. Uh, I, I knew these things that I just said, but something happened in my spirit that I think was the Holy Spirit that was like, no, like, what are you doing with your life, John? Like, this is serious business. I think it happened. This is a game changer. And I'll just say this. Like, if I'm pretty convinced, studying philosophy, studying other world religions, I really, I say this humbly, if Jesus is a fraud and he didn't rise from the dead and he's a madman or a liar, he's a horrible person, and we're pretty hopeless and life's pretty meaningless. I believe that deeply, but I don't think that's the case. <laughs> let's get, uh, let's, let's kind of dive back into the, the flow of the message. Thanks for allowing me to go there. I hope that was helpful to people that are wrestling. Now, I want to I go back to to talk about a death a little bit, because we can't, we can't talk about life until we talk about death. Years ago, I went on a mission trip to, to Peru in the Amazon jungle with Food for the Hungry. Um, our church uh, supported a community there in the Amazon jungle, and I took teenagers down and some adults, and we're going to do a camp for kids. And it was wonderful, and got to know a leader named David, and uh, near the end of the week, David came up to me, and he was weeping. I was like, David, what's, what's going on? He's like, my brother died. He's like, he's had this battle with cancer, and he finally succumbed, and we grieved, and we prayed, and then he turned to me, and he surprised me. He said, will you do the funeral? I was like, okay, sure. I mean, of course. And so he goes, it's tomorrow. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) 
And so we show up at this graveyard. I, I literally, I tried to find a picture of it, but it's like, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of years old right outside the Amazon. It's like a gothic horror movie. We show up, like really old graves, and it was kind of cool and kind of frightening at the same time. No one was there. So our team of like 15, we're dressed in the best clothes we have, and we're just waiting. And in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and finally, all these cars show up, and probably about 150 people. And out of one of the cars, they pull a casket, and they put the casket, six people grabbed it, and they're just carrying it. And they're just like, excuse me, excuse me. And we move out of the way. And there's kind of a, 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 a concrete pyre in the middle. And they put it down. I mean, it was loud. I remember the noise. Just, woo! And we're all just watching. There's these teenagers from America. And, and then everybody goes around it. And then they're talking in Spanish. I can't understand what they're saying. And then everybody turns and looks at me. And they're like, they want you. And I'm like, oh, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And I remember this like yesterday. It was like 15 years ago. And uh, I'm right up, like the casket's like right here. It's like, and then everybody closes around me and it presses me into the casket. There's like about two inches of plywood between me and this dead guy, I don't know. And then they, they at, the, at the head of the, the casket is a priest, a Catholic priest dressed in all kind of Catholic priest regalia. He looked really cool and I'm wearing like a t-shirt. And I think they, uh, I think they had him there to make sure I didn't mess up. You know, so he kind of looked at me like, you know, I was like, whew. And so I, I remember reading this passage. This is from uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, written, you know, maybe around AD 52. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, for you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, but, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. After he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I said, amen, and then, I'm not kidding, instantly, they pick up the casket and we're off. And we, we go around the 150 people, and I'm just like, I'm along for the ride, and, and then we round the corner, and there are grave diggers just digging. They're just finishing up. And they're sweaty, I think they're smoking, and I'm just like, what is happening right now? And they get there, and they just lower him right down. And again, I remember the boom. It wasn't soft. And then the grave diggers immediately just start throwing dirt on. <laughs> and then it goes, there hadn't been much mourning. It had been very quiet. And it was like on cue, the mourning broke forth. And there's wailing and crying. And, and in, in kind of that part of the world, they're, they're very bodily in how they express their grief. And they're grabbing their clothes and they're hugging as they're singing Amazing Grace. All this is happening at the same time. My senses are just like, oh. And then what I thought it couldn't get crazier, the mother who's on the edge of the grave, she's wailing and dancing and screaming. She falls into the grave. And then all the, you should see the teenagers, they're just like, what's happening? And so we're like, I never thought as a pastor you have to help the mother out of the grave. And then the grave diggers finish up and we continue to sing Amazing Grace. And then David put his arm around me. He's like, let's grab lunch. <laughs> Why do I tell this long story? Um, 
I think as a kid who grew up in America, who's really, we're really good using our technology and our money to keep death at arm's length. And that's not true for all of you in the room. Some of you have very close encounters with death. But we do our best as a society, like, I don't, <laughs> that, I was face to face with it. Our kids, the kids on that trip were face to face with it. In that type, in that part of the world, you can't avoid it. And that's true in Jesus' time. The, the, the average life expectancy was between 22 and 33 years of age. 50% of kids died before the age of five in the Roman Empire. You go all the way up to 1840, and, and, and the, the life expectancy is around 40 years of age. And then, you know, in the 1900s, it's like 50. Now it's like, I don't know, late 70s. And we're talking about living to 120. Like, I don't want to live to 120, FYI, but we're talking about it. There's a book written by a sociologist called Ernest Becker. Uh, he won the Pulitzer for this book, and then ironically uh, died. Uh, he died two months before it was released, and he never knew he won the Pulitzer. But he, uh, he wrote a book called The Denial of Death. The Denial of Death. And it's still a hallmark study in the field. And he argues compellingly that... Uh, the primary motivation for, for most humans every day and, and our actions are to ignore or avoid death. And he said the things that drives us instinctually as humans is to remove any anxiety about the inevitability of our death. That just drives us. I did some research, and I want to let me make sure I get this stat right for you. Um, one out of every one person dies. <laughs> so it's, Complex math, so let me just make sure those of you who aren't math people. One out of one, I mean, we can deny it all we want, but we'll all be there very soon. Even you young people. I'm not trying to be morbid. Like, that's not the point. The point is to teach us how to live. We can't talk about life until we talk about death. We struggle with that. It's going to be there for all of us. One, Mike gave a sermon last week, and he argued if you weren't here, you can take it up with him. I tend to agree with him that the 80s were the best decade by far, ever, yes. ever, right? Yes. yes, thank you. I was saying amen because I'm a kid of the 80s too. Uh, he, he went through pop culture and he rickrolled us and the whole deal. So, but what my, my favorite movie from the 80s is a movie called Dead Poet Society. Have you seen that? Yes. Uh, Robin Williams, he's Professor John Keating. He's at this English prep school. And I, my favorite part of the movie is the opening scene. So he comes in and if you, can you picture it? Like those boys are sitting there and they're nervous and they're expecting a stodgy old English lit prof that's going to put them to sleep, because that's all they've ever had. And that's not Professor Keating. That's not Robert Williams. He comes in, he immediately takes them out in the hall. I still, I can visualize the scene. And remember, he takes them up to the wall where all those pictures of past classes are. And this school's been around for hundreds of years. And he's like, look at those boys, lean in. And they're all leaning in like, who is this guy? Look at their eyes. They're just like you. They're ready to take the world by storm. And, they're, you know. and then, they, then there's just quiet. And he's like, and they're all dead. <laughs> and then he says, carpe diem, boys. Seize the day. Make your lives extraordinary. Can't talk about life until we talk about death. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters, if you've never read this small little book, and it's a fictional account between an older demon and a younger demon. And the older demon is teaching the younger demon how to mess with us, how to mess with humans. And it's really insightful. But in one part, one critical part, he says, all you got to do is convince them they have tons of time. That's all you got to do. 
they won't really live. Just convince them they have tons of time. That's why St. Benedict, when he wrote his rule of life for his order, he says this, he says, keep death daily before your eyes. What's Jesus's greatest great reversal? It's right in our story. They said, don't you remember? He said he would die and he would rise again. And this points back to Luke 9, where Jesus is asking them, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets the right answer, but not really. He's like, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. He's like, correct, but you don't know what you're talking about. And then he says this. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life from me will save it. In Luke 15, the prodigal son story, do you remember the father is chastising the older son? And he said, do you not understand? Your brother was dead and he's come to life. This is Jesus' greatest great reversal. I say it this way. Jesus transforms death into a doorway of life. Or think about it visually like this. We think in our natural state that we live and then we die. And Jesus says, whoop, and he flips it. And he's like, no, because of me, because of what I've done, I've transformed death now into a doorway for more life. I do not miss the, the Madison, Wisconsin winters. We, I was there for 18 years. My wife uh, was there for her whole entire life before moving out here. I mean, they were brutal, minus 40 degrees, snow every day, shovel. I don't miss those. But I do miss the change of seasons, and I do miss this, this one moment where amidst all the snow and the cold, spring's coming because these courageous little feisty flowers called crocuses, do you know them? They just pop through the snow. And you're like, yes, yes, it's coming. And Jesus knew how this worked, and he said in John's gospel, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel, falls, a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus' greatest great reversal was transforming death into a doorway for life. Our family friend um, and family uh, member, I would say Steve, is, is passing away. He's in the midst of passing away. I texted him and his wife this morning and told him our church would be praying for him. So please do that. Steve is just a remarkable human. I'm not being hyperbolic. Uh, he, I met him first uh, when I came and was the new youth pastor over 25 years ago at Blackhawk in Madison, and he was a volunteer in some capacity the whole way through. Gentle and kind and so Jesus-y, if that's a word. He just exuded Jesus. And his kids grew up and went through our ministry. His son, his oldest son, Matthew, uh, he married my wife's sister. So they were truly family. Just love him to death. And Last year, we got the brutal news that he'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And uh, he has fought really hard, and they've tried everything. And barring a miracle, and I believe in miracles, and I challenge you to pray for one. But barring a miracle, Steve will be face-to-face -face with Jesus probably uh, before most of us will. We went back uh, to Madison for Christmas this year uh, to see family and to see friends, but mostly to see Steve. And uh, my family went ahead of me. I did Christmas Eve here and flew out on Christmas morning. And I got right off the plane and went right to their home. And I've spent so much time in their home through the years. And I walk in and they're having family Christmas. And, and I walk in, I'm saying, hi to everybody. It's so good to see so many people I love dearly. And my family was there. I hadn't seen them in a few days. 
And Steve's in the back on a couch, and he gets up, and we just embrace, and he's really thin, frail, and of course, going through what he's going through, he is. And then I didn't want to steal too much of his time, but I just wanted to sit on the couch with him, and he didn't want to talk about cancer much. He wanted to talk about, what are you reading? What books are you reading? Like, how's that shaping you into a follower and a princess of Jesus? What's going on in you? We laughed, and I teared up a little bit, and he did, and, and I, I can't explain to him, but there was this, like, peace about him. It wasn't necessarily peace around, because there's a deep grief and probably anger and questions, even with myself. But with Steve, he was peaceful. And that doesn't say Steve isn't sad. Sure he is. That he's not angry. That he doesn't have questions. He doesn't doubt. Of course, he's human. And all those things are totally reasonable things when we encounter death of a loved one. Totally reasonable. Jesus was angry at the tomb of Lazarus. But at the same time, Steve is so deeply invested his life with Jesus. He's placed his life in Jesus' hands. And there's no doubt with him. He's sad, yes, but he's totally at peace and rest. It was, it was so incredibly beautiful and sad at the same time. My daughter, Eden, she's, she's 15, and she, uh, Steve's like her grand, granddad. She's got incredible grandparents biologically, and they were kind of the first kids of the horde, and they, Steve and Ann adopted our girls as their grandchildren, and it's real, it's genuine. And uh, Eden was nervous. She got to see him later, and she's going to be the last one to kind of say goodbye. And I don't think she knew what to do. I wouldn't know what to do. And later, I was like, well, tell me, how'd that go, honey? I was praying for you. And she said that Steve hugged her and held her and whispered in her ear, I'll see you later. I mean, is that not perfect? I mean, that's perfect. I'll see you later. What about you? I mean, I'm not trying to be morbid, but we don't have much time, none of us, even you young people. Life's like that. It just is. Can you say, I'll see you later? When you look at the future, you're just like, I don't know. My life's good right now, I don't know. Do you have that deep down, profound sense of shalom and peace being held by Jesus and his work for you? You can. I mean, that's what we celebrate today. It didn't stop on Good Friday. We can. That's the, that's the good news of Jesus. That Jesus, as only God can, it is the only way because it's the only way, put on flesh, took on all the sins of the world, and I've got a ton of them, took it all on and broke the power of sin and death forever and rose again from the grave and offers to anyone and everyone who would look to him for life that life is not, or death is not the end, but a doorway to greater life. That's the offer for you this morning. And faith is not, it's not the opposite of reason. It's not. Faith, I love this definition, it's reason gone courageous. It's like, yes, it makes sense. Yes, I believe. Everybody has to have faith in something. Everyone. What do you have faith in this morning? When I was a seminary student, I won't tell you how long ago, it was a long time, and I had an 8 a.m. theology class with my favorite prof, Dr. Burns. And I tried my best to look like I was paying attention and take good notes, because <laughs> it was expensive, and I wanted to get a job, and all those kind of things. And I'll never forget this. I was half awake, and he said this line, 
that literally I straightened up in my chair and stared at him. I'll never forget it. He said, if Easter means anything, it means everything. Think about that. I mean, what are we doing here this morning? Right? We just, if we think it's a joke, and that's okay. That's a reasonable way to look at these things. Let's just call it what it is. There's way better ways to spend our Sundays. Go home and watch the Masters or whatever you're going to do. Right? But if he rose from the dead, if he truly called this shot, and it truly is hope for everyone that we don't have to like, avoid death and like, freak out. We see it as confidently, like my friend Steve, a doorway to greater life. That's a game changer. That's an absolute game changer. And some of you are here, if I ask you, you'd say, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an apprentice of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I prayed the prayer. But it's kind of periphery to your life right now. I'm not trying to be judgy, I promise you. It's been a tough couple of years but it's not central to your life, like it's meant to be. It's meant to be. And I pray this morning for you and for me that you get serious and you wake up from your stupor and you begin to lean into Jesus and begin to live the life that is truly life with gusto. That's my prayer for you. Some of you are here, you were dragged here this morning. You don't want to be here. You're like, when's this guy going to be done? <laughs> and you think it's nonsense. That's okay. That's a reasonable perspective. I would challenge you this. Just look at Jesus. Just look at him. Study. Pray to him. I, I challenge you. Say, if you're there, Jesus, reveal yourself to me. Do not look at all the knuckleheaded Christians out there, and there's so many of them, my brothers and sisters, misbehaving in the name of Jesus. It's easy to get distracted. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And then some of you this morning, you know who you are. Right now, there's fire burning in your chest. There's fire burning. You know the Holy Spirit is moving in you. Listen to that voice. Listen to that voice. And maybe this morning, this is the day that the Lord has made, and this is the day that you can say yes to Jesus. You can say, I'm done trying to figure it out. I can't do it, and I look to you for life, Jesus. I, I place my faith in you. I hold on to you for dear life so that death will become a doorway to greater life. And as we come to the tables here in just a second, you can join us as brothers and sisters. I want to close with this quote. Uh, from my favorite author, uh, Frederick Beekner. And Frederick, uh, he passed away earlier this year, so I thought it was fitting to end with a, a Beekner quote on Easter, and it's also a great quote. So um, I'm going to read this, and I'm going to pray over it, and we're going to come to the table, and we're going to worship. Beekner writes, Resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is the next to the last thing. The last thing is the best. It's the power from on high that comes down into the world that wells up from the rock bottom worst of the world like a hidden spring. Can you believe it? The last best thing is the laughing deep in the hearts of the saints, sometimes even our hearts. For you are terribly loved and you are forgiven. You are healed. And all is well. 
Jesus, thank you that you're, you're not our king in a grave somewhere, rotten away, or in a bone box. Thank you that you're our risen king. All hail your name, King Jesus. I truly believe that, that you're our only hope. Thank you that you didn't stay at a distance of a God who's apathetic, that doesn't care, that left us to our own devices and our own demise, that you strapped on flesh and that you entered the fray because of love and that you showed us what it's like to love and you laid down your life and you broke your body force and you spilled your blood so that death can become a doorway to greater life. Thank you that we don't have to wait to die to experience that greater life. We can experience it right this moment, today, as we follow you and we're filled with your spirit and we become the people in the community you've created and called us and redeemed us to be. May we be those people. For your glory, God, and for the sake of the world, we pray this in the name of King Jesus. And all God's people said,